So we are continuing in Joshua chapter five, <clears throat> Joshua chapter five, and we had we had uh, covered much of the chapter, and then it says it says uh, uh, in we had covered last time how the nation had now just undergone circumcision because for forty years they had not uh, done that in the wilderness. And now in verse 10 of Joshua chapter 5, it says, While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plain of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on that day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. <clears throat> so, let me, let me give you a, a reminder of where we are here. They have come across, they, they, they came up from Egypt, which is down here, came up this way, conquered the kings on this side of the Jordan River, which runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. This is the, the half that they have yet to conquer. In fact, this was the promised land big segment of the promised land that was given to Abraham. In fact, if you look at, at Abraham, what was promised to him was to go from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, which is way over here, all the way across to current uh, uh, Iraq, to, to uh, the Euphrates. But we know they're not going to get that land until Messiah comes. But this land was given to them. They've, they're just about to attack Jericho. They've crossed here. They're staying right here at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho. So that's just about, by this scale being 20 miles, this distance is only about a mile. So they're only about a mile from Jericho. So you, got a, a, you, you have about 1.5 million people, because there's a half a million that are staying on this side, about 1.5 million people, including 700,000, uh, including... Uh, um, including, uh, I think it was around 120,000 fighting men from this side coming across as well. And they are on the plains of, of Jericho in Gilgal. They're now taking the Passover. They haven't had the Passover since Mount Sinai. It's been 39 years since they had the last Passover. You say, well, why didn't they have the Passover? Because they weren't circumcising, because they fell out of grace. That was the generation that was going to die in the wilderness. So this is the third Passover they're about to have. The first Passover was in Egypt, just before they left Egypt. The second Passover was a year later. Year later, it's, it's on the 14th day of the first month, a year later. They took the Passover at Mount Sinai. Then they, 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 uh, this is the third Passover they're about to take. But what happened was, right after they took the Passover, the day after... They started eating the produce of the land and the manna stopped. That's what we just read. The manna ceased in verse 12 on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So it turns out this valley, this valley here is extremely uh, uh, flush. This valley right by Jericho and I visited this valley. What happens is you have this, these Jerusalem mountain, Jerusalem and this, these Judean mountains are very high and they dump all their water down into this Jericho Valley. And because of that, it's a, it's a highly productive area. A lot of water there. 
And so you can go there today and you can see date trees and all sorts of fruits growing and, 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 and uh, it's a very productive area. They're eating now the fruit of the land. They were in a, a quite foreboding area for four years in the desert. God fed them with manna. What is manna? It was bread dropped from heaven. So in, I'm going to read a bunch of verses today and I've got them all written out. You can follow along if you can turn to it or you can just listen. In Exodus 16, verse 4 through 7, it says... This is when he first dropped the manna from heaven. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk with me and and, uh, walk in my instruction. And it says then, so they had to gather manna every day. On the sixth day, he would give them twice as much, they could gather twice as much, so that they wouldn't have to gather on the day of rest, the seventh day. And then it says, what was the manna like in Exodus 16, verse 14? It says, when the layer of dew evaporated in the morning, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost of the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. And some gathered much and some gathered little. So it says it was like flakes, very thin like the frost of the ground. So even in his giving them bread from heaven, because they had to now survive for 40 years in that wilderness. And if you look in that wilderness, you say, how could two million people survive in this wilderness? Well, he brought them water from this rock that followed them. And then also he brought them grain. He brought them bread from heaven would fall down. It was flake-like. It was very thin. So in other words, you had to spend some time gathering this. Why didn't he just drop, you know, loaves of wonder bread from heaven? Why didn't he just do this? He certainly could have. He's God. He made them work for it. So even when he provides for us, he doesn't just hand us a bunch of money. There is working for it very often. Even in provision, God causes us to work for it. So you say, well, this is my salary. I work for it. God has given you the job to get it. So, even in His providing a job, it is God's way of providing. They had to gather it. Now, they're used to this. That whole generation died in the wilderness. The new generation, everyone 20 years old and younger, was going to live that entire 40-year period. All they had known for 40 years was bread falling from heaven. So they wake up the next morning, let's go out and gather bread. And it's like, where's the white flakes? Where's the white flakes? It stopped. Imagine if you have been given something and then all of a sudden it stops. The disruption that that would cause in your life. And so what happens is people become dependent on things when they get handouts all the time. One of the things that's really amazing in the American church is the amount that some people, not all people, but the amount that some people give in service to the Lord, where they will give a tenth of their income and many times more to the service of the Lord. They go as missionaries, say, to to other parts of the world, and you see in the churches there, people give very little because they're used to getting handouts from other sources and they themselves have never been in the habit of giving. 
This is why we give. This is why we give when we're poor. When we're students, we take a tenth of what we have and we give because the more money you make, the harder it will be. And he has them give. And so, so the Bible actually deals with a lot of this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, it says, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6, it says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. This is the key to happiness in life. Contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain, he says in 1 Timothy 6.6, when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with this we shall be content. This is the promise of the New Testament. What are we guaranteed? Food and covering. That is it. Food and clothing. He doesn't even guarantee us a home in the New Testament. If you have a home, that's added blessing. What he guarantees us is food and cover, covering. He does not guarantee us a car. He does not guarantee us anything in the New Testament except food and covering. He says in verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snares and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into utter ruin. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So he doesn't say that the money is the root. It's not money is the root of all sorts of evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. And because of this, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. You want to pierce yourself with many a pang and wander away from the faith? Pursue money in your life. Pursue money. You may well get it, but you're going to lose out on a lot of things. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He says, flee from it. That means that there has to be steps where we take to flee from it. They gave, he gave them manna from heaven, and then all of a sudden the manna stops. How will they now be content? Contentment is something that comes from the presence of God. In Philippians 4.11, it speaks it beautifully. Philippians 4.11, it says this, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to get along in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The context of this verse that we often quote, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, is within the context of contentment. He says, whatever circumstance I am in, I've learned to be content. I know how to handle a lot of money. Many people don't. Poor people generally do not know how to handle money. They all of a sudden win a lottery. It destroys their lives. Destroys them. They don't know how to handle it. Learning how to handle money. Learning how to be without. Learning how to be content in whatever the circumstance God has you. Is a treasure that is found in the Lord. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity, Paul says. In every and in every any in every and every in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Contentment is the key to happiness in life. Learning how to be content in the Lord. Learning how to be content with your salary. 
I know people that are never content with their salary. No matter how much they get, it is just not enough. Just not enough. Learning how to be content with what God has given us is a treasure. Especially when something dries up, like the manna just did on them. The manna dried up. Now let's, let's look, go, go back to Joshua chapter 5. I want to hit on one other topic on Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua is is just near Jericho. Gilgal is within a mile of Jericho. And he's just near Jericho. He's looking over the city. And all of a sudden he sees a man standing with his sword drawn. This is not any ordinary man. Some will say it's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament Many people believe, many scholars believe that it is a vision of Jesus Christ manifest on earth, that it was the Son of God whom he had met. Others say, no, it is just a very high angel. But here he meets him and he sees him with his sword drawn. So you see the boldness of Joshua. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no, rather indeed I come as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. The reason why people think that this is a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ is because any time a man fell before an angel, and you see it, for example, in the book of Daniel, right away the angel would say, get up, get up, don't fall before me, I'm just, I just serve the Lord. Here, he never says to him, get up. He says, you fell down, take off your shoes also. Just like when Moses was by the burning bush. He has his sword drawn. And even in that, there's this boldness of Joshua who says, I can take this land. I don't care who's standing here. And he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, no, rather, I'm here as, as, as uh, the captain of the host of the Lord. God is not taking sides here. It's very interesting. You think God is taking sides. God is going to deal with the people. We always want God to be on our side. We always think that we are on the righteous side and God is on our side and we conveniently make God in our image. God says, I'm not taking sides here. I'm here. He says, I'm captain of the Lord of hosts. And now he's going to describe to Joshua how to take that city. If we go on to Joshua chapter 6, we're going to cover most of this next time, but I want to go to one verse in Joshua chapter 6. And that is, at the end of their taking of the city, it says in verse 21, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, donkey and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Everything in that city was killed. Men, women, children, everything. This is unusual in the history history of Israel. This is unusual. Only in this promised land were they to destroy everything. Every other battle, they were never to kill the women and the children. Now, David violated that at times, and we'll see that. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, 
and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show them no favor. So this was God's command, what they were exactly supposed to do. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, it says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give them your daughters to, uh, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and, and, and he will destroy you. So you see that, that uh, uh, there was this instruction, he says, I don't want you mingling with the people of this land. We live in a day and age which, which is, is super politically correct, much more than any other period that I've even seen in my life. And times and behaviors changed. I'm telling you, there are things that, are, that, that you cannot say today, which 10 years ago would have been just fine. Nobody would have looked at you funny. Our sensitivities change, but what's interesting, it's the very Judeo-Christian ethics that we hold that makes us sensitive to this. Why would they go and kill men, women, children, animals, everything? This is jarring for us in this day and age. And we have to remember, number one, it was a different age. That age, things were far more cruel. The value upon life was much lower. However, God, the God of the Bible, always held high value on life. And we see that, for example, in, in Ezekiel 33.11, it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God, even upon his enemies, he does not rejoice in their death. In Jonah 4.11, he told Jonah concerning, concerning Gentiles, he said, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know the difference between the right and their left hand, as well as many animals? God has compassion upon nations. That's why we look at this with a bit of a double take. Why all of a sudden in this territory, Lord, are you saying destroy even children, women and children? Why are you doing this? It's unusual within the context of Israel. In, in Genesis chapter 18.25, it talks about the destruction, Genesis chapter 18, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we don't put upon God the same restrictions that we have upon man. God is going to use men to carry out this destruction. God can destroy people all the time. People die all the time. God has taken a life. God does this. It gets us upset as, pe as people when people in authority start abusing other people, we have an expression for that. He says, we, we say, who does he think he is? He's playing God. So we acknowledge even in that statement that within God, there is an acceptance that God can give a life, God can take a life. He is not under this, but it is what is he doing using Israel to take this, these lives? He could just snap his fingers and you know everybody in Canaan dies. He could certainly do that. It says in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so the righteous and the wicked are, are, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. 
far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And God then concedes. He says, even if there's ten righteous in the city, in those cities, even ten, I will not destroy the cities. For the sake of the ten righteous in those cities, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he said. I won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. I will not do it. That's what God said. And then, then uh, um, in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, it says, God said to Abram, Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. What he was doing in Genesis is he was predicting exactly what took place, that they were going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Why were they going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years? He says, But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite, which is a Canaanite uh, people, is not yet complete. That's the secret here. For 400 years we know God to be long-suffering, and He is. For 400 years, He let His people be enslaved within Egypt to allow the Amorites, the Canaanites, living in the land, a chance to turn. For 400 years, we think we're long-suffering. Well, I'll give them to tomorrow to say He's sorry to me. Yeah, we're long-suffering. God waited 400 years, 400 years allowing the Amorites to turn. And they had fallen into such debauchery that they were offering up constantly their children in offerings. For 400 years, God waited for them to turn. When their iniquity was finally complete, and only then did He proclaim this destruction upon them. And He told them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 13, When the Lord your God gives you gives it to you into your hand, you shall strike the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only, so, so, so this is actually, he's describing now what happens when I give you territories outside of this land. He says, only the women and the children and the animals and all the city and all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourself and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. So this was the commandment for anybody outside the territory of the land. Again, this was unusual. Then he says, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby, only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything but breathe, that breathes. Nothing that breathes shall be left alive. So they were to kill all the people right here in that, in that part of the land. So this is... This is was unusual, like I said, for Israel. David, in a period of disobedience, in a fourteen, in, in a sixteen-month in a period, a year and four-month period of disobedience in David's life, he was making raids and killing everybody. It was during a period of disobedience. These guys were amazing in, in the number of people they would kill. You just read the scriptures and you see the bloodiness of what was going on. You know, we think, oh, you know, David's not not that great. I could take him. Let me tell you, David could take out hundreds of men by himself. He knew exactly where to stab them, exactly what to do to kill them. These these men were actually extremely well trained in taking lives, in killing people. Very, very meticulous in what they could do and just just totally shred a city. Amazing in what they, they could do. 
But it's unusual for us. Some would say, you know, I, I can't believe this. Well, believe it. The Scriptures are inerrant. The Scriptures are true. It is not the God we know. Well, first of all, it's of a different generation. It's of a different generation. It was a very bloody world. And God was no one to be trifled with. God was no one to be trifled with. God really brought judgment. You know, remember, remember uh, uh, C.S. Lewis said, Aslan is not a tame lion. I mean, this is, this, this is, was, uh, uh, and he proclaimed the same things upon the children of Israel. He said, I will use the Amorite and I will use the Babylonian to do this to you. What you had done to the other nations. He brought a lot of the same sorts of persecutions upon the Jews when they did this. All of this has now been elevated. When did this start to change? And it happened with Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, the whole tenor of the argument started to change. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 6. So if you turn to Luke chapter 6, we're going to look in verse 27. Jesus changes now the whole argument. This is where things really started to change the teachings. The New Testament elevated the teachings to a much higher standard. And we will see this all the time in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. It says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him. You see what he's done, how he's elevated this into mercy. What he told the Israelites, once they had this land, he said, if you get strangers passing through this land, you are to absolutely protect them. You are to guard their rights. You are not to steal from them or take anything from them. Once he cleaned out this land, he wanted no mixing between the Jews and the other people of that land. That was a unique part of the land. In that land, they were supposed to be good to, their, to the travelers, to the sojourners coming through. And this is why, as Americans, we need to be particularly, have a particularly good eye for the international student in our land. Because they are internationals. Because we are encouraged by the Bible to show them particular kindness. You will see this in my wife. My wife is an immigrant to the United States. She's been an American for much longer than many of you have been born. But she has remained having a sensitive eye to the international student. Very sensitive eye. Where she will always go the extra mile for the international student. Because of what the scriptures say. When there's a stranger in your land, you are to show them Extra kindness, extra kindness when they're a stranger. So God, even within ancient Israel, was changing now the standard. Once you've cleaned out this land so that you don't mix with these people that were offering up their own children, you are to be kind to these people coming through the land. Jesus now is elevating this all the more. He says you're to be kind to your enemy. You're to bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Think about that. Think about it. Do good to those who hate you. Look, he hates me. Your command is to be good to him. Why do I have to be? Why doesn't he have to be good to me? Because you're the believer. You want to walk with God? Follow his commandments. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. You initiate it. You be kind when they are not kind. Why? Because you're the believer. Because you're the one who has seen this in the scriptures. Walk with God. Do it. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. How can this be? Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. 
And, and then, you know, our motivation is to say, well, if He's good to me, I'll be good to Him. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Verse 33 of Luke chapter 6. If you, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do... Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind and ungrateful. He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You see how He has raised this on us. He says, He Himself, God Himself, is kind is kind to ungrateful and evil men in Luke 6.35. God Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You are to do the same. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is where the whole thing is elevated all the more. And this is why when we read about this, it's jarring for us to see what's happening. But it is these very Judeo-Christian worldview that affects us today. And we're going to close with Romans chapter 12. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to start reading at verse 14. And as I'm reading this, you be praying, Lord, do this in my heart. Lord, conform me to this image. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. And do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Look what he says. As much as it depends on you. Nations defend borders. That's what nations do. But as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me, we are to be at peace with all men. Nations may be at war, but I have seen nations at war and individuals between those two nations be at peace. As far as it depends on you, you are to be at peace with all men. This is what Jesus has called us to. This is why it says in John chapter 4, when He met this woman by the well, it says... The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her. Jesus was going to deal with her. His culture said have nothing to do with her. Jesus engaged with her. And then Jesus went into the Samaritan city and many people were saved in that Samaritan city. As far as it depends on you, you are to be at peace with all men. Verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If somebody has done you wrong, you are not to strike back. It says, leave room for the wrath of God. And it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You leave it to Aslan. You leave it to the lion. You leave it to the one who can really do it. Leave it to him. We have all of these fields. Well, I'll take him to court. You're going to hear from my lawyer. This is not what God has called us to. We are to avoid, as much as it depends upon us, we are to avoid courts of law. Why? Because we're believers. Because He's called us to something higher than the world's standard. You say, well, this is how people in the world work. This is not how believers are to work. He's called us to a higher standard. 
But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Think about what you would do to somebody whom you love. You go and you buy them you know, a Starbucks coffee and you give it to them. This is what you are now to do to the one who's giving you trouble. You overcome evil with good. It is an intentional act. People come to me that they're not getting along with their boss at work. I say, oh, I can deal with that. What do you do for people when you like them? Does your boss like coffee? Oh, yeah, I see. She always comes in carrying a cup of coffee. Okay, find out what kind of cup of coffee she likes. You go at your lunch break and you buy her exactly that and bring it to her. Just give it to her and just say, I just thought you might like this. This is, you know, your, your latte with your two shots of whatever. And just give it to her. Another young lady, I told her, I said, what, what are these guys at work like that, that, that are giving you a hard time? She said, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're gun nuts. They're always reading their gun magazines and their deer hunting magazines. I said, go buy them some magazines. And just give it to them as a gift. You overcome evil with good. It's an intentional act of good. You over, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but you overcome evil with good. It is an intentional act. You take the person who is bothering you, the person who irritates you, and you do an act of good to them. It will cause you to love them more. Whether they love you or more or not, I don't know. But it will cause you to overcome evil. You overcome evil with acts of good. Jesus has raised the bar on us. It is this very same God. It is God who strikes vengeance. God can take a life. It is not up to us anymore. The standard has been raised upon the believer. Overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You so much for Your Word. And I pray for these young people. Lord, I pray for them that You would so work and move in their lives that they would overcome evil with good. That You would cause them to bless those who curse them. To pray for those who mistreat them. Father, let them see the words of the New Testament, the words of Jesus. How He spoke words. How Paul instructed us the way we ought to be acting. Father, I pray for these young people that You would make them different. And Lord, I pray that You would also build within them a contentment, that they would learn to be content, that they would learn to be content in the place that You have them, and in that that they would have joy. Father, I pray that You'd protect their young minds and their young hearts. And Father, for the, those here who do not know You, Lord, I pray for Your grace to shower in upon them, to draw them close to Jesus. Father, I pray that it is the kindness of God who would draw them to repentance as they see that they are totally inadequate to walk in these things by themselves. Lord, I pray that they would open their hearts this day to the love of Jesus Christ who calls them to a much higher standard, a much higher standard than the world is calling them. Lord, I pray for Your grace and for Your outpouring for the glory of Jesus. Amen.